Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and today we have a special guest, a little bonus episode of Close Reads here. And I'm I'm talking with Dr. Ralph Wood about Flannery O'Connor. Dr. Wood, how are you? Th- uh, thanks for joining the show. Oh, I'm delighted to be uh, talking with your listeners about the hero of my life. <laughs> Uh, in, 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 in non-biographical terms, in the woman who turned my life around permanently when I first encountered her uh, as a college junior in um, 1960. Mm. Well, those—that's a oh, sorry, 1962. Well, that's a pretty strong, pretty strong statement. The hero of your life and, and the writer who turned your life around. I think was that what you just said? Changed your life, turned your life around, something like that. Um, I got. I. I mean, this is a broad question, but I'd love to hear more about that. How did she change your life? I mean, and, and how did she become the hero of your life? I mean, I suppose there's just well, the literary aspect. You've, you know, you're an English teacher, so you love the literature, but is there more to it than that? Oh, yeah, much more to it than that. Um, she came to my little college up at East, what was then called East Texas State in the town of Commerce, okay. about 60 miles east of Dallas, um, to make her only Texas visit. Because my Roman Catholic teacher had discovered her work and um, elsewhere and thought it would be a good thing to bring her, and um, so she came, spent a couple of days, gave a couple of talks, and um, to prepare for her coming, of course, um, everyone read her work, and I was stunned by it because uh, it contained three things that I would continue to live with the rest of my life. First of which was that she writes not about the upper class South, but about the um, the, the the middle and lower middle class South, mm. um, of, of Baptist and Church of Christ and 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 um, um, Pentecostals and the like um, that I came from, uh, not the aristocratic South that William Faulkner writes about mm. of Episcopalians or Catholics or the like. So she was in my orbit. Um, the rural South, the small town South, not the either the urban or the plantation South. So I could enter her world sympathetically because I could see all the characters she was creating. I could, I could I've heard all the phrases they use, many of them at least. Hmm. But, but secondly, uh, I was drawn to her because she was uproariously funny. Hmm. She was comic to the core. Hmm. I would, as we say, bust a gut laughing uh, <laughs> at the lines in her work. Because uh, they are so, um, she loved Mark Twain, what she calls slam-bang humor. Hmm. Not a kind of subtle humor, Hmm. but a humor that um, makes you um, just burst out laughing. But third and most important, um, I began to see that humor was tied to her Christian vision. That is to say that she was a Christian comedian in the deep sense of that word that Dante uses, because Christian comedy doesn't mean simply uh, outburst of uh, belly laughs. It means rather uh, opening on to new life, transformed life, Hmm. life in the world that's been radically reversed, that's been converted, that's that's undergone metanoia, total change. Hmm. Um, And therefore, unlike the tragic world of literature, which is, of course, crucial, but ends in death, and in death it closes down all possibilities where no future lies beyond it. So her her vision was, was deeply Christian and deeply funny, and I've been taught, of course, that the longer and more sour one's face was, the more likely one was to be Christian, <laughs> and that if one laughed, more, the more likely one was to be secular. Huh. And she simply 
uh, exploded that notion. So, and so I've been, I, I, I saw then as a, as a 20-year-old, if I could spend the rest of my life trying to understand work like hers and to, and to make it available to my students and to the larger public, I would have my vocation. Hmm. And so I found that vocation in November of 1962. Hmm. So when you, when you saw her in person, and this, so this would have been just a couple of years before she died, right? Did she die in 1964? Right. Okay, so um, was, she quite, was, was she quite ill? Was she, was she in a lot of pain? Could, well, could you tell? I mean, or, or did that sense of humor um, actually come out in person? Oh, it, it came out in person. But let me say a word about her illness because it's so crucial. Okay. Uh, from what I can learn from people who suffered from lupus, which is what she died of, yeah. the pain is excruciating. But she never talked about the pain. She never made her illness the defining center of her life. See, in our world, if you have any kind of disability, if you have any kind of um, quality that makes you um, the object of some kind of pity, then that becomes who you are. That becomes your identity. She knew that Christians don't have their identity in their suffering or their pain, uh, that Christians have their identity in Christ. And so, um, no, she never complained about it. Now, she she walked on crutches Mm -hmm. for the last decade of her life because Mm -hmm. of the... uh, Massive doses of cortisone uh, so destroyed the, uh, the musculature of her of her legs that she couldn't negotiate stairs very well. Um, so um, no, she did not leave her humor, and she would not talk about her illness except in ironic terms. When some really stupid reporter said, "Miss O'Connor, is your illness does your illness have any effect on your writing?" She says, "No." Since for my writing, I use my fingers and not my feet. <laughs> In other words, I'm at the typewriter, <laughs> and I'm not <clears throat> typing with my lame legs. So she dismissed the question out of hand. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so um, she was funny. I didn't, you know, gladhand her. I was, I was in such awe of her yeah. that I listened and heard what she had to say and, and enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, and heard uh, the lines that, by the way, all the students at this little Calpatty College, as we call it, <laughs> got it. They got her humor because they came out of the same world that she was writing about, the world of the backwoods South hmm. and its small town, small farm iterations. It, it's so interesting because I often, when I read O'Connor, I I, I feel like I want to laugh a lot. You know, I, I, that it seems very funny at times, and, and I tell people that. And they kind of look at me sideways, and um, and I and I've wondered for a while if that's because I've spent a lot of years in the South, and you know somehow that kind you know that kind of humor became a part of my life, or if um, I'm just more inclined towards dark humor or what it was. But why do you think that for so many people that sense of humor is not necessarily the most? It scandalizes. Sorry. Well, let me let me say that she is regarded as a grim, joyless, hopeless, uh, dour writer, right. which must not be taken um, certainly um, with the kind of seriousness that other writers like C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien should be taken. Mm-hmm. That kind of feedback almost always comes from Christians and not from secularists, mm. and that to me is a very bothersome thing that Christians should find her off-putting more than people who are not Christian. And, of course, the reason for that is that she understands the scandal of the gospel. 
The gospel is an offense. Blessed are they, says our Lord, who are not offended in me, who will not turn away from me because I turn their lives upside down. <clears throat> and so she um, she offends complacent Christians who don't want to undertake the kind of trouble that goes into understanding complex, deep Christian fiction, hmm. which is what she gives us. Hmm. So, and, and how does the humor play into that? Well, it plays into it um, in um, a couple of ways. The most obvious is, or simply the, the side-splittingly funny lines, um, often, by the way, uttered by by um, by her secular characters. I, mm-hmm. I was exchanging <laughs> yeah. a letter with a, with a former student of mine, uh, where at the end of her story that actually is most about herself, good country people, the antagonist says to the protagonist, Listen, Holga, I've been believing in nothing as so long as long as I've been born. Since ever since I've been born. <laughs> so here he is a real nihilist who's never read a word of Nietzsche or Heidegger or anything else, but gets off that kind of line. Um and um just they're throughout her work really funny lines. For example, in her uh, <clears throat> her favorite story, one that's often not even allowed to be taught because it uses the forbidden N-word, even though she's very careful to make her characters use that word, only never her omniscient narrators. Mm. And when she's in a character's mind, she uses the N-word. But in that favorite story, which is a kind of contest between a a great-uncle and his nephew, the great-uncle's trying to hold up how um, superior his life is out there in the the countryside. And... um, he he warns um, his his nephew about the danger of getting lost, and the little boy says, "Ain't nowhere around here to get lost at." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. And then in in her uh, most difficult work, the violent bear away, where yeah. there is a, a murder, yeah. and and the uh, murderer confesses to a truck driver, says, "I just drowned a boy," mm. <laughs> and the truck driver says, "Only one." <laughs> So it strikes me that, you know, even in a in a good man it's hard to find, which is the story that most people have you know, at least they read that one in the school and if it was mm-hmm. off putting they didn't if they didn't have it properly taught or had a bad experience, they probably never picked up O'Connor again. But even in that story, the line that the misfit says about if only she had someone to shoot her every day of her life, she could have been a good woman. Even that, that's the signature line. Yeah, yeah. and that's a and with deeply redneck fun- grammar. She would have been a <laughs> yeah. good woman if it had been somebody yeah. to shoot her that's every right. day of her life. That's right. But even that line is deeply true. funny. If we all faced our death the way we should in every day of our living, we would not be who we are hmm. in the bad sense of that word. Right, right. And, but even a line like that is it's deeply funny and deeply true at the same time. And it seems yes, like that's the point. It, her humor is always. Striking to the core of things. Yeah. It's never simply for the sake of humor. So when, as are the deaths, by the way. Let me say that. Yeah. That's what puts off so many people. Yeah. And by the way, I never encourage anybody to begin with a good man is hard to find because there are seven deaths in that story. <laughs> yeah. um, I agree. Uh, and then, uh, I, but I remind them of what she said about her story. She said, "Now remember, a lot of people get killed in my story, but don't nobody get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> That's nobody is." Nobody's tortured. Nobody uh, has their fingernails pulled out. Nobody has needles gouged into their eyes. So the violence is never gratuitous. It's never for its own sake. Hmm. Almost all the deaths end redemptively. 
Because for O'Connor, death is the ultimate place that life uh, aims at. Mm. And she loved the parable of the talents, uh, of those uh, who went out and multiplied their talents and brought them back manifold. And the man who went and buried his and the one who stands under the worst condemnation. So it's in death that we return our lives fully fledged in the faith so that they have flowered for things good and faithful or we, alas, return empty-handed. It does seem like she has a very Catholic, um, even medieval, on the show we've talked a lot about how she has something of a medieval sensibility about her um, and that her approach to death seems very medieval or Catholic um, in the sense that, you know, um, it, it, it's not, it, she doesn't seem to view death as, you know, as a, as so, as bad of a thing as, as we do so often, or as, as, as a negative thing that, that death is kind of a, is kind of a beginning or a fresh start. Would you agree with that? Well, sure. I mean, when our Lord says, let anyone who comes after me take up her cross and follow me, the cross is an instrument of death. Hmm. The Christian life is a long preparation for martyrdom, and if we don't receive it in this life, we receive it, of course, and um, receive it by the traditional method, we receive it in our death. So are we prepared to die? So she loved those signs, get right with God, tomorrow you may die. (laughs) And not simply because she's a Catholic, but because she's a Christian. Um, So yeah, life is a continual dying unto self-will unto pride, unto all of the deadly vices. Um, I remember the Archbishop of Chicago once saying, we need to have a huge billboard that reads, dying is good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not a Catholic sentiment. That's a, yeah. Now, she is Catholic to the core. Yeah. I don't yeah, want yeah. to yeah. de-emphasize that. Yeah. But she is universally Christian, mm. not narrowly, parochially Catholic. Mm. That's why there's so few Catholic characters in her book. She did not want to be known as a Catholic writer. Mm much less a Catholic writer named Mary O'Connor. <laughs> so yeah. she drops the Mary. I mean, that's more Catholic than the Pope. <laughs> Mary O'Connor, the Catholic writer. Uh-huh. So she said, I am a writer. Yeah. My work has to stand on its own. Mm. And I don't want to be given false adjectives in front of it. Mm. And she drops the name Mary because it sends all the kind of signals to uh, audiences that, well, here is a, a mere pious Catholic woman. Mm. And she adopts a family name, which was her middle name, Flannery, which is androgynous. You don't know whether she's male or female when you when you read her. Hmm. So you said that you, when you're in college, your your professor invites invites her to speak at your school, and so you and so you started reading some of the work to prepare. Now, I, I mm-hmm. guess most of the work was not collected in, or gathered into collections the way we have it now. So my, my this question is, is in two parts. One, what did you read first as you were preparing to listen to her? And before you'd ever even met her, what was your first impression of her work? Well, uh, this is in 1962, before there... Uh, she's published by that time, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, her two novels, mm-hmm. well, her, her second novel was published in 62, but her stories have been gathered only in that initial volume called A Good Man is Hard to Find. Right. So I read that little volume of stories to begin with, okay. and, uh, you know, I was not put off by them. I was shocked by them, mm-hmm. but I was shocked in the same way that I'm shocked by the gospel. Not shocked because uh, someone has made me uh, want to put a gun to my head. And uh, I simply continued from there. Uh, it wasn't that I uh, you know, read anything special or different. Now, the one thing I would say to your listeners 
is that the place to begin O'Connor, if one wants to be really brought into her world of letters, The Habit of Being, I argue, may be the best book of Christian um, spiritual reading one can undertake. Hmm. If you read a letter a night by Flannery O'Connor, she will save your soul. Hmm. <laughs> because you get wow. the O'Connor. They're funny. They're about all of the ordinary life that she uh, lived where nothing much happens. There won't be any biographies of me because the only thing that happens is that we killed a rattlesnake yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> life consists of, of going from here to the chicken house, she said. So uh, she she hoped hey, to be married. a lot can happen between the house and the chicken house. That's right. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, huh. so an awful lot can happen between here and the chicken house. Okay, so speaking then of what happened between the house and the chicken house, uh, which biography that's out there do you recommend the most? We oh, had a few people ask us that. This is kind of a side that's, question. That's but... the question to which I have to give a very sad answer. There is none. Hmm. Both of the biographies devoted totally to her work are failures. I've written a scorching review of the, the, the book um, by Gooch um, because he ignores her Catholicism. He ignores her Christianity as far as possible and thus misses the heart of her. Therefore, the, the best book, oddly enough, is a little literary biography. Hang on just a minute. I'm going to reach it from my shelf. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, um. Yes, it's called The Terrible Speed of Mercy, which is actually a phrase from O'Connor. Is that the Jonathan Rogers sub- one? Yeah, Jonathan Rogers. Yeah. Uh, subtitle, A Spiritual Biography of O'Connor, from Thomas Nelson, the great Bible publisher in Nashville. Hmm. So that's, that's the best biography in that you get all the essential facts of O'Connor's life hmm. without either it being a laundry list, which is what the first biography gave us, or without it being a tendentious uh, attempt on the part of, uh, of Brad Gooch to put her into uh, a world that's alien to her. Hmm. As I recall, the, the Gooch one spent a lot of time on her years at the writer, Iowa Writers' Workshop and in New York. It seems to spend an inordinate amount of time on, on those years and the relationships she had with all those people, but I could be wrong about that. No, I mean, he does that, but uh, he wants to hint Throughout, and he does hint throughout that what is the um, the needle in the haystack of O'Connor's life is her sexuality, hmm. and that yeah, simply that's really... is untrue. Not because there's anything scandalous to hide. On the contrary, um, she had lesbian friends, but she was nothing of a lesbian. In fact, when her closest friend the figure who's called A in The Habit of Being turns out to be a woman named Elizabeth Hester, comes out to O'Connor as being a confessed, open, practicing lesbian. Um, and those letters were just released in 2007. Uh, O'Connor makes the most pastoral, faithful, Christian response imaginable. Instead of congratulating her, Instead of thanking her for being honest enough to do what most people are too cowardly to do, this is way back in in the ni- about nineteen maybe mid fifties, she doesn't do that. Nor does she come out with a harsh condemnation of her deviant sexuality. She says, "Let me bear your suffering with you." 
fulfilling, of course, that famous line from Colossians 1, 24. Paul there calls us to make up for what is missing in the sufferings of Christ. That is to say, the sufferings that he did not bear on earth are everywhere around us and are meant to be borne by Christians. And then she goes on to say over and again to her, you are not your history. You are not your history. By which she clearly means, your identity does not lie in your circumstances. Your identity lies in what allows you to transcend those circumstances. And for O'Connor, of course, that's faith in God. So Gooch, instead of seeing that point, just downplays O'Connor's Catholicism throughout and and thus really misses it. So it's not that he just gives inordinate attention to this or that, but that he misses the heart of the matter. And Jason Peters gets that right. Jonathan Peters. Jonathan Rogers, excuse me. (laughs) Jonathan Rogers gets that right. Yeah, I think one of our... um, Yeah, one of our... um people here uh, interviewed him for a separate podcast a year or two ago, I think, a short, a short interview uh, regarding that book. Um, so why do you think, um, or here, I'll put it this way. Do you think that Flannery O'Connor is for everybody? Do you think that everybody should read O'Connor? Um, we get, yes. Okay, so we have some people who... Sorry, who, who, sorry, sorry to cut you off. No, 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 no. So we have some people who read and they say, you know, they'll read a story or two and um, they'll say, you know, it's just, it's, it's too, it, it makes me feel too sad or too uncomfortable or it's too difficult to, to process, to get through. Yeah. Um, it's just, I can't read this at this station in my life. Um, but you say everybody should read it. So, so what do you say to, to people who just feel like, man, I cannot take any more of, of what's going on? Sure. Here? I say, well, how recently have you read Ecclesiastes? How recently have you read Job? Hmm. How recently have you read the account of... Um, Abraham passing off his wife as his sister. <laughs> I mean, the Bible is scandalous to its core. And therefore, to say O'Connor is too much for me is to say, I cannot take, this is her phrase, Christian realism. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying everyone ought to be an exponent of her work, as I am, mm-hmm. But it seems to me that a person who says this woman gets it wrong um, is in dangerous in a dangerous condition because not just that O'Connor gets it right, but she gets it right under the most trying of all conditions. She's dying for the last 12 years of her life. She had to come back home again where she did not want to come. She said, I thought this would be the death of me to return to my small-town, gossipy, um, little-minded uh, burg in middle Georgia, that it, I would never do anything else creative. I would simply dry up and die, hmm. if spiritually and then physically. And just the opposite happened. She underwent a tremendous flowering of her talent there because she came to see that it was that region that had produced her, the American... South, that was the heartbeat of her fiction, and that there, and, and she came to a wonderfully reconciling relation to her mother, whom she regarded as, as a smother mother. In fact, uh, that's why everything rises must converge is such an important story. She began thinking she'd have Julian's stance toward her mother, hmm. and she comes. And by the way, Mrs. O'Connor was very much like Julian's mother. Hmm. But she came to see that she, as a potential Julian, was in far greater danger 
than her mother or Julian's mother. So uh, one of the questions that we debated on, on the show and subsequently kind of on the internet after that is um, whether Julian's mother was in the wrong to to offer the, the little boy in that story the, the coin. Um, yeah. How? Where do you fall on that? I'd, I'd be curious to to get your to get your opinion on that. Um, sure. We we also debated you know, who's this story really about the mother or Julian. Um, I, it's about both, I think. But but um, that I guess. Well, remember, only Julian is named, so that's a giveaway that he's the protagonist. Yeah, that's true. Um, but he's, and and therefore that's that's part of the problem. Hmm. He her only significance lies in relation to him, as hmm. he sees it. Hmm. And that's why O'Connor, a very careful craftsperson, mm-hmm. artist, mm-hmm. doesn't give her a name. But O'Connor makes it very clear by the repeated emphasis on the blue eyes of Julian's mother, mm-hmm. on the fact that this woman, in her own way, has sacrificed everything. She's let her own teeth go unfilled, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that he might have opportunity. He's obviously a ne'er-do-well, a failed, would-be writer, still living at home. She's still taking care of him, uh, though, of course, he blames her for his failure. So there is about her what I would call an innocent racism, if you can deal with that oxymoron. Hmm. She is not a mean racist. She's not one who, as Lester Maddox said, would like to take an axe handle and bust them over the head. She simply is the product of her circumstances. Um, She is one who has not found yet, at least, a way out of those circumstances, and therefore she harbors all of the conventional views, but at the core of her is an innocent goodness. And therefore, when Julian spots his mother, seeing that she has a hat on exactly like the black woman's, and lets her see that he has seen that's the ultimate humiliation of her. And that's what he, he glories in. He relishes the fact that he can humiliate his own mother. And for Flannery O'Connor, uh, who learned this from Dostoevsky, filial ingratitude, as Shakespeare calls it, to have contempt for the very person who brings us into being, who sustains our life, even when they're limited, as his mother is, amounts to a virtual rejection of God. In fact, uh, I have a little aphorism from Dostoevsky. We stand in immediate relation to our parents as we stand in ultimate relation to God. And therefore, a good barometer of our relation to God is how we treat our parents, even when, especially when, they are benighted, limited, uh, as, as, as his mother is, after all, God is not always obviously good. Um, that's why Job screams for 39 chapters. However, that innocence plays itself out in two ways at the end. One is the giving of that shiny copper to a, a little black child, the child, I guess, of the woman with the hat. I can't remember if it's the same woman or not. Yeah, I think it but is. In any yeah, case, it, I think it refers to her, of, her as the boy's mother. Right. It, it's a gesture of friendliness. It's a gesture of, of um, again, a naive. She wouldn't take that little black child home with her to you know, feed him at her table, but she is not condescending toward him. Um, she's simply acknowledging that he's cute and that she wants to smile rather than frown at him. 
And so the woman who stands judged most harshly there is the black woman who slugs her over the head with her purse and prompts a, um, a stroke, a fatal stroke, in uh, Julian's mother. Secondly, as she dies, what is her last word? Caroline. Caroline. She's, she's, of course, she's become delusional. The last person she thinks of on her at her death is her black nanny that she knew growing up, the one who treated her with utter mutuality and cordiality and love, and therefore she thinks of that mutuality and cordiality and love in a black person. When, of course, Julia's mind has been trying to teach her <laughs> the lesson, uh, the all-too-easy lesson of, of race. Uh, but if you let me go a step further. Please. That's another story that is comic in the Dantesque sense. If Julian had, you know, she her, her one eye, she's having a stroke that has blinded her one eye. Her one eye looks at her own son, who calls out to her for the first time in the whole story, Mama, Mother, terms of endearment, not just my biological parent. She rakes him over with that one eye and finds nothing because there's nothing there to find. Hmm. Her son, though she would never, of course, thought of this word, is a thoroughgoing nihilist. Hmm. He is one who's reduced the world to nothing except those things he can manipulate and manage. Hmm. Now, he could have had two utterly inadequate responses. He could have saved God exactly what she deserved which would, of course, been the most horrible and non-comic ending imaginable. Or he could have said, at last I can see the horror I've committed and put a gun to his head. That would be an equally uncomic story. Instead, we find him for the first time, as the text says, entering, entering, opening traveling into a new world of guilt and sorrow. Now, this isn't to say that Julian's going to undergo his own metanoia, his own about-face, his own conversion. O'Connor doesn't want to preach, but at last he's open to transformation because he's seen the truth about himself. And Mm -hmm. that story, therefore, has a happy ending. She dies well, and he's on his way, at least potentially, to living well. Though, of course, it ends in physical death and in his own horror. That's where you've got to be subtle, as Scripture is subtle. Hmm. I mean, the parable of the, talent, of the, of the, of the workers in the vineyard, you know, Jesus says the guy comes to work at four, gets the same as the guy comes to work at nine. It's unjust. It's unfair. Grace is never just. Grace is never fair. So, so, it's always true. So one thing that people have said is that in the end, it ends with a death, and then... We don't ever know for sure whether Julian truly had that that that, that metanoia, as you you know you used that word earlier. Um, there's some there's some gray area there because obviously you know life goes on. I assume there's going to be two steps forward, one step back type thing. Um, but for some people, that's challenging. That's difficult. That's a little dark, or at least it's not. It doesn't um, make up for the for the darkness of the death. Um, what, what, no, 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 no. It does not make up for the darkness of the death. Let's get very clear about that. That woman should not have died. He should have been aware of her high blood pressure. He should have been 
in no way attended, attempted to humiliate her. Um, mm-hmm. So we're not saying, oh, good, she died, and therefore, uh, hallelujah. Now, she does make a good death, though it was an unfortunate death and that it, it occurred at an inappropriate time and way. She makes a good death. But notice what he's, he's taking out trying to find help. <laughs> he's running as hard as he can, but, of course, in a dream, you fall further behind the harder you run. But he's not running simply to get a doctor, because when he returns, if he does, with a doctor, she will be dead. And so the omniscient narrator makes it very clear that while he is getting nowhere in his physical flight, he's getting everywhere, potentially, in his spiritual flight, entering the world, not of medical doctors who could rescue his mother, but the world of guilt and sorrow. Hmm. So so when we look at a story like A View of the Woods, though... Um, which I've, I've, I, who was it? I cannot remember that. Was it Sally Fitzgerald who said, or I thought she said somewhere that, um, that was a story about a character actually making, you know, not making the right choice and, and in the end being damned that, that story seems on the surface to be, um, to not have that moment, that, that kind of Christ haunted moment where, where some kind of redemption or some kind of, um, positive death happens. Uh, how do you how do you approach that story? Well, I agree with you, and I agree with Sally Fitzgerald. Uh, that's a story I intensely dislike. Hmm. Uh, like, not because it has that unredemptive ending. Do, but can I, can, I, hammered... can I ask a clarifying question about that real quick? When you say you dislike sure. it, do you mean um, you don't think it's as good as her other work, or it's a story you don't enjoy to read? Both. Both. It's not as good as her other work because it has no subtlety to it. Hmm. It's so obvious when the bulldozer begins plowing up the field uh, that was once. And of course, O'Connor had exactly that view of the wood from her front porch, hmm. Hmm. that what we're in for, you know, is this contest of, of, of wills between the one who sells and gets rid of the property and the one who doesn't want to. And the whole story just has to be a forced character. Even had it ended redemptively, I wouldn't have liked it. It's forced, it's heavy-handed, it's obvious, and therefore it's bad art, and not to me accidentally is it bad theology. Hmm. Okay, so then what about a story like Greenleaf, which also seems to be very, um, maybe it has a little bit less subtlety, you know, with the with the bull and some of the, um, the language that seems to be romantic. Um, would you consider that one to, to be not as good either? From that perspective, that comes close to being a perfect story. <laughs> okay, so how is that different then, if I may, than a view of the woods? I mean, how is because I mean there is subtlety, um, maybe there's more subtlety, but it also is very direct in kind of revealing its its um you know its parables, I suppose the elements yeah. of its parables. Um, so let me go slow here. Okay, please do. Oh. I need you. I need you to. First of all, the protagonist is not named in the story. The protagonist is Mrs. May, mm-hmm. whereas the story is entitled Greenleaf. And the Greenleafs, collectively, are her antagonists. So already in mm-hmm. these... See, what she's trying to do in her late fiction is not to repeat what she's done before. So she's always moving in a different direction in these late stories. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about that at length, but I won't do it. Let's stick to this story. Mm-hmm. So... Mrs. May 
has been all along obsessed with what she owns, with her own property, and therefore is really bothered that this scrub bull owned by the Greenleafs keeps breaking out of his pen, getting into her cow pasture, therefore threatening to corrupt the bloodlines of her of her cows, gnawing at the hedge outside her window at night. So we're prepared totally for the ending encounter with that bull. Mm-hmm. It's not heavy-handed in the sense that it's completely prepared for. Secondly, it isn't just the property that she owns that she claims is hers, which, of course, is the most massive kind of pride that one can have. Hmm. In fact, C.S. Lewis likes to quote George MacDonald. MacDonald says, The first principle of hell is, I am my own. That's exactly who she thinks she is. Hmm. She is her own and what she owns. So that when she watches the sun go down, if you remember, in a very subtle scene, it occurs to her even the sun has to get off her property at night. <laughs> and, of course, the sun is a classic. And, of course, physically, it's where all, all life derives from the sun. Yeah. But classically, of course, it's an image of God. Hmm. So she is a woman eaten up with uh, a kind of complacency that the green leaves burst wide open. And that final scene is prepared for in a variety of ways, but especially when she comes upon Mrs. Greenleaf out in the woods where she has piled up clippings of the world's horrors and sufferings, and throws herself over them in prayer, asking, she's a faith-healing kind of Christian, asking God to heal these suffering souls. Hmm. And of course, Mrs. May stumbles upon her and says, get up from there! You know, go wash your clothes. See, for her, cleanliness is not next to godliness. <coughs> it is godliness. <laughs> and, of course, she, she says huh. the word Jesus should be kept in the church the way other words are kept in the bedroom. Mm. Yeah. So she's scandalized by Christ, even though we get that brief momentary image of a total fanatic, fool for Christ, as Paul says Christians are called to be. And so Mrs. May is courting a comeuppance. Hmm. It's not that she at the last gets one. She has been courting one all along. She's been given uh, evidence after evidence that her world is not one that she can manage. She's raised these two losers <laughs> yeah. of sons who insult her, pass the butter to the victim. Wesley and Schofield. <laughs> yeah, and of course, those are elevated names. Yeah. O'Connor probably gets one from the Schofield Bible, yeah. by the way. And uh, what's the other one's name? Wesley. Uh, Wesley from, from, of course, the Methodist. Yeah. Uh, she, she probably had no idea what either of those two people believed. <laughs> Mrs. May, that is. 
Yeah, and, 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 and the Schofield, or the, the, the Greenleafs are so unimaginative, they can't even think of names to give their boys, so they just call them uh, E.T. and O.T., <laughs> which ain't short for nothing, as we say in, in, in behind the pine curtain here in East Texas. <laughs> Although a friend has pointed out to me that the, that the largest uh, state insane asylum in the world was located in Milledgeville, Georgia, had 10,000 inmates, <laughs> and that O'Connor is probably getting in a... a a wicked slap at OT occupational therapy <laughs> and um, uh, ET educational therapy <laughs> in their names, That's but they've gone off to war <laughs> and they've married French wives and those kids have been sent to Catholic schools and they've developed culture, the very things her boys will never develop. <laughs> and so she's given signal after signal after signal that her life is a mess, though she thinks it is a resounding success. So when that bull comes at her, she is, let me back up. O'Connor says, a story should end in a way that's totally unexpected and totally correct. Hmm. Whereas it should surprise, she won all the O. Henry Awards. It should surprise the reader that it ends that way. And yet it could not have ended in any other way. Hmm. So when that bull gores her to death, rather than screaming out, no, what does she do, if you remember? She grasps hold of it hmm. as if he were her lover, as if she were whispering into his ear, hmm. clearly an embrace of what the bull has done to her, rather than a rejection of what the bull has done to her. And we're not told what that discovery is, but notice some last discovery, hmm. some final discovery, some ultimate discovery. And for O'Connor, of course, the word discovery literally means pulling back the cover from what has been hidden. Hmm. Truth about herself. And um, he embraces her like a wild, tormented lover. And, of course, the, the, the Song of Solomon is about <laughs> God is the ultimate lover. There's a whole Christian tradition that envisions um, our relation to God as that of a lover to his beloved. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So... Um... Greenleaf personally is when when I've taught high school seniors, Greenleaf is one of the first stories that I introduced them to for O'Connor. Um, I don't start with you know you, you kind of verified my my opinion that a, a good man is hard to find is not the right place to start. Um, and I start with Greenleaf in part because I think it it's one of the really great examples of kind of her way of telling stories. Um, mm -hmm. But what I'm wondering is um, you know. Anybody that's talking about literature or especially teaching literature runs into the problem of, um, well, I guess we'll call it the black hat problem. You know, the story where O'Connor's, I think she talks about it in um, Mystery and Manners, where she was speaking at a college and somebody come up, some, some student, young writer came up to her and said, uh, what does the black hat mean in A Good Man is Hard to Find? And she says, <laughs> well, it's just a black hat. And he, you know, he gets all disappointed. And I know on the one hand... A writer can. She said the significance of the misfit's hat is the cover of the misfit's head. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, um... but of course, she's being. I interrupt. She's being self-ironical. 
No hat is without significance. Uh, the hat is a sign of distinction in the South. And mm, mm. wear hats who have who stand outside their ordinary norm. And notice when he shoots and kills her, he has his hat off and his glasses on. Hmm. But anyhow, well, so, uh, you're right. So what I was going this is a to begin. So what I was going to say about that, you know, well, as I said, the black hat problem is that as a teacher or someone discussing the literature. Um, clearly she's saying can start by letting the story be itself just experience the story for what it is um yeah, and of course the story is the meaning there is no meaning apart from a story she said if someone asked her miss o'connor explain the meaning of this story she said if i could explain the meaning i wouldn't have had to wrote it <laughs> <laughs> so at what point then should a teacher or people who are discussing the literature begin narrowing in on on what that black hat means and start looking at the symbols and looking at it as a some of her stories as parables or allegories or any of this kind of stuff. When do we start? Yeah. When should someone start doing that? That's good. She hated what she calls symbol mongers. Right. Those who find a symbol in every fingernail. <laughs> Those who want to step outside the story and make connections that are not inherent in the story. And so the misfit's hat doesn't have grandiose symbolic significance. It's simply how people in the South dress, even when they're serial murderers. <laughs> and because he sees himself as set apart, as he says over and again, to the grandmother. And so it's fitting that he should wear the hat, not as a symbol of something else, but as simply a mark of who he is. Uh, one who is not just another killer, but a killer with a difference, who says, I wouldn't have done it if I had been there and seen that he had raised the dead. He raised the dead, and he ought not have done it. Because if he raised the dead, it ain't nothing for you to do but go out and cut somebody's tires or burn down his house or do something other mean to him. In other words, he is a real cornbone nihilist. He sees that if God is not risen from the dead, and if Christ does not raise us from the dead... We are of all people most desperate, and the world is most desperate. Now, I've interrupted you about 50 times, David. No? <laughs> no, no, I mean, you're the one that should be speaking. Um, so where's the – it seems like there could be a fine line, though, between you know looking at, say, the, the bull in Greenleaf as some kind of Christ-like figure or, Holy, or the Holy Spirit or something like that, or looking at the bulldozer in A View of the Woods as representative of – progress or modernism or whatever so where's the line between identifying that and saying you know hey look at that that's interesting this mean this could mean this or this this is a way of understanding the story and just viewing those things as uh, as it's just a bull or it's just a bulldozer and they have this specific purpose within the story do you know does my does that question make sense where's that line that's a really good question it doesn't have an easy answer because um, she invites in this story the, the, the myth of Europa. Right, yeah. You know, yeah. who is the Greek figure raped by a bull. You're right. But that is a way of at once elevating the story hmm. to universal significance, hmm. saying anyone who knows the myth of Europa can pick up on this story and see that the Greeks even saw something like this. Mm-hmm. But also... This is where she's so subtle. To tempt the reader 
to think that's all that's going on, a modern retelling of the Europa story. Because she thinks ours is a psychologizing, ours is an allegorizing culture that has a specialty in missing the point. <laughs> and that story is loaded with Freudian stuff. I haven't talked about that. <laughs> and that, by the way, is why Greenleaf is the most often anthologized story of all of O'Connor's because of the Freudian and classical stuff. People think they can get around O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just a little misdirection, huh? Right, yeah. So there's no, there's, no, there's no exact line, but here's a way to put it. She says, always show, never tell. Mm-hmm. Always suggest, never hammer. And her, the favorite phrase she learned from the Iowa Writers Workshop was, sink the theme, sink the theme. Let the theme mm-hmm. rise up from beneath and never be imposed from above. Hmm. Easy symbol-mongering, easy allegorizing is imposing meaning from above. Hmm. So, insofar as the bulldozer is that which is destroying the land, Mm -hmm. then it does become a symbol of, you know, massive urban greed, and the destruction of the countryside for the sake of so-called growth. Mm-hmm. But to suddenly make that into Christ or even the Antichrist, it seems to me, is a, is a step too far. Okay, so well then what, how, what about the bull in, um, in Greenleaf? It, Greenleaf? Is, uh, should, the, should someone read the bull as a symbol of something larger, or is it simply that the bull is um, the you know, a, uh, the tool by which something larger happens, something greater happens, rather. I think the latter. I think the latter. Um, it, the, he is a means to that larger end, and therefore to start allegorizing him as Christ mm-hmm. is, uh, and that's what she objected to, by the way, most, Christ-mongers, mm-hmm. people who wanted to find, find Christ under every rock. So uh, now he acts in a way such as Christ acts, in that one of her favorite phrases: "Grace must always wound before it can heal." Mm-hmm. He wounds her, but he wounds her in such a way as to make for her potential healing. Because remember, he flips her upside down, and so for all of a sudden, she sees the whole world as sky. And you can see the world of the sky only when you're standing on your head. When she watches the sunset, she can see only her property, and and the sky has to darken, and the sun has to get off it. Hmm. So he's transformed her vision, hmm. literally. Huh. But of course, that's so that's so good. Yeah. So yeah, I think you're right. It's more a means to that absolutely transcendent spiritual theological ending but not in such a way as to make him Christ. Because once you do that, then you have to ask, um, well, which horn? <laughs> which is the left hand? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. You get into silliness. And, and then, 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 of course, Mr. Greenleaf has to be, be Judas, who kills the... <laughs> right, <laughs> you know. And so you, you just, that, that's, that's stupid, to be harsh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... You may want to... <laughs> <laughs> so, um... 
one thing we've talked about on the show a little bit is how we believe that O'Connor, one of the things that makes her kind of um, gives her a medieval sensibility is that she seems to not view the spiritual and the physical world as being separated, that they're, that they're, there's, they're not almost, they're almost not on different planes. You know, like I think someone was writing about her and used the term metaphysical realism even. And would you agree yeah. with that? Because that seems to play into this. Yeah. Where oh, that's it's... exactly right. But let me, let me put up a real flag of warning. Okay. That's not medieval. <laughs> that's Christian to the core. That's no. the incarnational vision of the world. Hmm. That the physical and the and, and and the spiritual are interwoven inextricably. Mm. You know Thomas's famous motto. And this is Catholic, but it, every every Christian believes that the soul is the form of the body, mm. uh, so that God's grace is instantiated in the world, and our object is to find it, and identify, it and live according to it. And that's not medieval. <laughs> that's that's the gospel. So then, if that being the case, then should we should we look at things like the bull and Greenleaf as? I guess I'm just kind of building on what we were, you were just saying and following following on my last question that that there is something spiritual happening with the bull or through the bull or you know via the bull um, because the spiritual world and the physical world are not separated, and so God uses the things of this world to reach us and speak to us and change us. Is that too simply put? A little, a little, in that I don't think you want to use the word uses. The writer is the one who uses these things because that's what art does. Um, art uses the visible world to identify the invisible world when it's at its high stretch, which is what, for O'Connor, all art is doing, wittingly or unwittingly. But the visible world is the place where God dwells, not that which God uses, insofar as it is his good creation. That's what the, how the book of Genesis, uh, the uh, creation account again, and God beheld, it is very good. Hmm. So the gospel enters the world, God enters the world in the Jews and in Jesus, because of the human failure to discern God in the creation, is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1 and 2. But now that we have seen what God is doing in the creation through Christ, we can go ourselves and discern it, as I was trying to suggest earlier, and conform our lives to it. Hmm. Unless a seed falls into the ground, you know the rest of that parable. So we begin to see everything as graced. The whole world is sacramental. <laughs> now that sacrament, sacramentality comes to full expression, of course, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, the two sacraments that both Protestants and Catholics all acknowledge. But, the, but, but by being baptized into Christ's death and raised into his life and being fed by his body and by his blood, therefore transforms our vision. And our vision is that by which we live. The point that you made about how her vision is literally changed, she sees the world in a, from a different perspective in Greenleaf mm -hmm. is so is so interesting. Can't believe I missed that. <laughs> um, hey, I want, I'd like to go back um, 
go back to kind of one of the original points, you know, as we, we were going a little longer than I thought, but this has been fun. Um, for me anyway. Uh, so when we talk about how O'Connor is dark and difficult, sometimes you also say that Flannery O'Connor is not, is something that is someone that everybody should read. Um, for people that have a difficult time, just stomaching some of the grimness of it. Um, would what would you suggest how would you suggest those people move forward i mean would you say push through it is it just about um do you need is it one of those things we just need to read read her a few times and get familiar with kind of the way she tells stories the language she uses all those sorts of things um to familiarize yourself and kind of that or is there i would urge again the letters the letters the letters and the essays the essays in mystery of manners fantastic uh, declarations of what she's about. And so once you immerse yourself in the letters, you come to really like this woman, to see how, like us, she really is. And when you read those essays, you can really see what her intentions are. And then, to keep reading, and again, I've, I've taught these stories, I think, every year of my 45 years in the classroom and never got tired for a second of rereading and teaching them. Now, that's the mark, in my view, of a really great artist. It's one whom you can't exhaust. So the the beginning reader who's having difficulty with her needs, you know, put her aside for a while and do some other things, read some other things, mm-hmm. and come back to her. But keep coming back. In your... Because as you you know, uh, well, you see things every time that you hadn't seen before. Yeah. And sometimes they're the, they're the most obvious things, but then the significance no, of them. Usually obvious, yeah, right? The significance of them, like I noticed that her vision was changed, but then it didn't connect with me what that what the significance of that could be, you know. Um, yep. And I've read that story a dozen times, probably. And it took you, you know. I guess I had to talk to someone who was smarter than me. Um, uh, it's not a matter of smarts. Let me let me be clear about that. Not a matter of smarts. Um, I guess I had one of my most eye-opening moments when I was on a sabbatical in Florence, Italy, working on my Italian. I never got beyond what I call chicken fried Italian. <laughs> I had to speak in English and then translate into Italian. That's not the master language at all. But my tutor was a very cultured woman, had a Ph.D. from a major university. She was a major dantista, as they call Dante scholars. And on the very last uh, tutorial I had, she said, I need to make a confession to you. I'm a Catholic. I know Dante inside and out. I know the medieval tradition as well as one could at my age. And I don't have any idea what Flannery O'Connor is about. Hmm. And it suddenly hit me that here I, as a Baptist boy, going to revival meetings Three times a year. There's no TV. You have to do something to fend off boredom. So you have to revive <laughs> summer, autumn, and spring, hearing invitations given just as I am, hmm. I come, hmm. over and again, and hearing the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Again, proclaimed into me, proclaimed to me in a way that was very limited. I'm not trying to say I got the whole gospel. On the contrary. The N-word was a part of my ordinary vocabulary. 
High schools were segregated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Blacks could not drink out of the same water fountains I drank out of. But that little constricted, narrow, parochial East Texas county seat town opened up to me, Flannery O'Connor, as all the sophistication and brains in the world could not. Hmm. Hmm. That's why I keep saying she's for everybody. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and especially Christians who you know have hold of the gospel and can come keep trying to say, you know, how is this woman getting at, in her, again, indirect way, never, she's not preaching. She says that's, she hated art that preaches. That's propaganda. Art that sets out to make a point is propaganda. Therefore, she's going after things slant-wise, tell the truth, but tell it slant, said Emily Dickinson. But anyone who is immersed in the deep things of the gospel will eventually get Flannery O'Connor. It doesn't matter what their IQ is. I have a few rapid-fire questions for you here, just because just I'm curious and... Um... You know, sure, fine. All right. This is fun. So, okay, what is who? Who is your favorite of all the f- characters in Flannery O'Connor's work? The preacher in the story called The River. Mm. That's and that's from the volume of uh, the first volume, right? A good man is hard to find. Uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, I may talk about that story, by the way, if if we in Austin this summer. Oh, fantastic! Because it's the one that most Christians have the most difficult time with. Mm-hmm. I don't need to get into that, but that yeah, that I mean, uh, I love the misfit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, the preacher in that story. Mm-hmm. So there's never been to seminary. There's never been to college. As O'Connor say, he don't know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> But he nails it in his corn pone, untutored, untrained way. Hmm. So what's your favorite story to teach? That one. Okay. The river, because it's the one that puts off most people because it seems to be Christian. That, that's, where the, that's, that's where the trouble really comes. It seems to be Christian, and yet it ends with little boys drowning. Hmm. And that's why it's so much fun to teach fun in the sense that it is such a challenge to try to open eyes to the way in which that story is not only comic in the Dantesque sense, but is deeply, deeply Christian in the specific sense. Uh, would you say that is also just your favorite story to read? Like if you can only read you, you could only read one more O'Connor story for the rest of your life, that would be the one you'd read over and over? Yeah. That would yeah. That would probably be it. Which story challenges you the most? And I don't mean challenges your under, your ability to understand it, but challenges you personally, spiritually, um, makes you think, you know, repent the most, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Wise blood. novel, Which, again, <laughs> not by any obvious way, looks to be redemptive. But it really, really is as a man blinds himself, puts rocks and sand and and and, and glass in the sh- in his shoes, and wraps barbed wire around his chest. Mm-hmm. He says, "I can see more now that I'm blind." That's about radical Christian escasis, the New Testament word which means the training 
that an athlete undergoes. And that's what the Christian life is. And that scandalizes me because I don't live that life as I should. Did did um what story do your students tend to enjoy the most? Or be inspired by the most, say? Yeah. Uh they all like Revelation because it's again so yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah. And yet, at the at the same time, so redemptive. And as as I like to say, don't nobody get killed. <laughs> <laughs> we so we are we've read the first three stories on the podcast of from everything that rises must converge. We're doing the enduring chill next. We're actually going to discuss that tomorrow, and then you know so on from there. As people, oh, you're doing it. I'm, I'm sorry, I thought you'd already done it. Yeah. Uh, we've done. We had, we hadn't we haven't finished the whole volume. We we're in the middle of it, and so. That's where you know some people were asking some questions, so I thought it'd be a good time to get you on to discuss, you know, as to yeah. talk as we get ready for the the second part of the book. Well, I guess the latter two thirds of it. Um, as people prepare to read the rest of these stories, um, some of which are darker than others. I mean, the enduring chill is one of my favorites, um, and I think it's it's another one that's got a lot of humor to it. Um, so, as people are gearing up for these, what advice would you give them? Let me just make a suggestion uh, about two or three of them specifically rather than abstractly. Okay. Perfect. The enduring chill ends with a scene that Flannery O'Connor said was the most difficult she ever had the challenge to write. Hmm. And that is to have God himself enter the story Hmm. and the third person of the Trinity Hmm. as he descends from that ceiling stain. Mm Mm-hmm to Asbury Fox. Mm. So to get your readers and listeners to deal with that story, thinking about that confession might really help. Mm. Mm. The Lame Shall Enter First is a short version of the violent Bear It Away. And so if they can get hold of that story, then they might get hold of that longer and more complex novel. The key to that story, I mean, there are many, many keys, might be the paradoxical confession of O'Connor about the fact that she majored as an undergraduate in the social sciences Hmm. and said, thank God it didn't take. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, it was like a bad inoculation against measles or flu (laughs) because Shepard is a total product of the social sciences in a way that Flannery O'Connor regards as the key, the, 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 how shall I put this, the end product of the culture of death. Hmm. That's a, that would take a while to unpack that. <laughs> yeah. but you see, the social sciences reduce us to statistics, <laughs> to generalizing categories, to the idea that the human ache can be cured by the proper rearrangement of the furniture Hmm. of our lives. Hmm. When, of course, for her, the problem is not a club foot. The problem is a twisted soul and heart. Hmm. And the little boy in that story, well, he's not little, he's he's, uh, Proofus Johnson, he's a young teenager, he's a young thug, but at least he knows that. My problem ain't that I've got a club foot. <laughs> he says, I steal because I like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? 
You know what Shepherd thinks he is? He thinks he's Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly right. Mm. Parker's back may be the most perfect story she ever wrote. Mm. It was her final story to have finished mm. before her death. Mm. And if you can get your readers to look at the great 6th century Christ Pantocrator, the great icon of Christ as the sovereign ruler of the universe from the Abbey on Mount Sinai. And keep that in mind as they follow the way in which the protagonist comes upon that icon when he's getting ready to have his back tattooed and cannot pass it up. Hmm. But instead passes up all those sweet Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus the physician's friend. Hmm. Those, of course, are what she called Christian sentimentality. Hmm. And she had a wicked watchword. She says, sentimentality is to Christianity as pornography is to art. Hmm. So for her, those well-meaning Greeting cards from Hallmark are pornographic. Hmm. They violate the gospel in the same way that pornography violates sex. Hmm. Judgment Day is the story that she left unfinished. She was working on it in the hospital where she died. Hmm. But it's her attempt to break into new territory where for the first time in the whole of her fiction... She has a black man and a white man living together in mutuality. Hmm. Now, not without difficulty. It is, it is a rewriting of her very first story, The Geranium. Yeah. Yeah. And The Geranium is a nice social science story. <laughs> 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 and Judgment Day is an anti-social science story. Hmm. Um, as I said... I just I would skip view of the woods. I mean, as I said, it's bad art, it's bad theology. <laughs> Comforts of home is kind of on the borderline. It's not a great story. It is not a bad story. It's one that I don't regularly teach because it seems to me not to measure up to all the other seven in that volume. Uh, along with, of course, a view of the woods. Those two are the her two weakest stories in it, that she herself brought to completion and uh, and finished. Hmm. The one thing that might help you there is that The Comforts of Home is a kind of retelling of the story of St. Thomas Aquinas' decision to uh, enter the monastery in a little town outside Naples. And his brother, so he, was a, he was the son of a wealthy landowner. He had you know, a huge uh, good fortune lying ahead of him. And he's throwing it all over to become a monk. And so his brothers decide that they will cure him of that desire by bringing a prostitute from the brothel into his room to seduce him and therefore invite him into the world of the fleshly pleasure that will overcome any desire to give that up. Aquinas grabbed a poker from the fireplace, a red-hot poker, <laughs> and drove the whore out of his room with that red-hot poker. <laughs> the Comforts of Home has an event like that. Uh, 
Now, Carter's yeah. not saying you've got to know the Aquinas story in order to get the point, but right, right, right. It has a, it has a, a, a story that's based on that event. Mm. <laughs> well, we we are looking so forward to having you speak at the conference and getting a chance to meet you in person and um, to hearing you speak about Tolkien and O'Connor and. Um, and thank you for spending, you know, over an hour with me here. This was really helpful, and uh, and I hope for our listeners, uh, plenty of you provided pre- plenty of reasons to continue reading O'Connor, even when she well, seems challenging, which I think is probably the point, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just glad to learn how many people uh, follow your podcast. I mean, uh, the the wife of our seminary president, uh, Carolyn Still, son is in my class, and he got onto it through his mother. Oh wow. I'm glad, of course, to come and, and meet your audience. I have I have one of your products in my class, Sarah Lunsford. Her her mother attends all your sessions. Okay. <clears throat> so I will get to meet a few people I know already. I'm Excellent. glad I'm eager to meet you. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, and so anybody that wants to learn a little bit more about uh, Dr. Woods, Dr. Woods' work on Flannery O'Connor should go check out his book, Flannery O'Connor and the Christ-Haunted South. It's by Eerdmans, and it was published in 2004. Um, you can find it on Amazon, but then um, before the show, Dr. Wood mentioned that I sh- that um, if you were looking for, you know, if you want to do it in a group, like a book club or a school group or something, check with Eerdmans over at eerdmans.com. That's E-E-R-D-M-A-N-S.com, and you might be able to get some uh, volume discounts for that. So this is a great book. It is my favorite book on Flannery O'Connor. It's helped me a lot. Um, if I say anything on the show that sounds interesting, it's probably because I read it in his book. So um, thanks. Might I, might I interrupt to say oh, please. I have a bunch of stuff about O'Connor on my website. Okay. And it's um, – I think you can Google Ralph Wood and get to it. Okay. Perfect. But it's the uh, ordinary HTTP um, colon – double backslash www.baylor.edu that's standard and then backslash um ralph r-a-l-p-h underscore wood okay gets you to my website oh great great that's that sounds fantastic i'm quite certain that many of our listeners will be headed over there to frequent that the next several weeks as we continue through (laughs) through this book but thanks again thank you so much for taking some time and for joining the show and for uh dispensing some wisdom well, my pleasure, my delight, and God bless you and your readers. You, and your listeners. Sorry, your <laughs> listeners and readers. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all reading together. Um, right. But uh, thank you, and yeah, have a great weekend. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.